Hi, Joe. What's the problem? <laughs> I don't know. It's like, you know, we just finished recording. Do you think it was a good show? I do. Um, it is a... Um, the topic that we're talking about with our guest, Carissa Hesse. Well, the guest USA. is fantastic. Let's bracket that. Totally fantastic. The topic, um, it, it's actually, it's sort of a, a hydra-headed and, uh, and it's a complex hydra because, you know, some of the heads maybe you want to pet and others you want to chop off. And it's, mm -hmm. so it's hard to know what to do and how... It, this, it's a very unwieldy topic that we're starting to get into. Mm -hmm. um, she's a great person to talk about this topic with because she's written some fun stuff. And from a, a more skeptical perspective, mm -hmm. uh, a number of people who write in this thing that we're talking about Corpus linguistics. Are, are, are real advocates. Yeah. And I think some of them quite stridently advocates. Um, I'm not skeptical in the way that Carissa is. I'm also not strident in advocacy of it in the way some other people are. So I think it's a fascinating topic. It's hard to talk about. It's very complicated. This is going to be the first, I think we'll have other conversations about this topic. We're definitely going to have other conversations. Did, did you feel like we were just, the, the two of us were ganging up on you and we're saying off with his head the whole time? Is that why you came up with the Hydra thing? No, I, no, I didn't feel that way <laughs> at all. I, I, did, I do find it... Um, you want to talk for hours about this, and so I can see yeah. the frustration in you. At, like, not I find being able it incredibly frustrating, <laughs> um, and it's and it's the same. It's it's a version of the frustration I felt w from our really f interesting conversation with Larry that I find it difficult to have yeah. conversations on these things of less than five hours in length. Okay, so our next episode, five hours. Cool. Let's just do it. Let's just get it. Let's, let's get it, it all in on the table. Let's do it. Because, um, yeah, I, I'm skeptical too, but not of, yeah. I, uh. And part of it is you and I are, you and I approach these things from very different points of view and tendencies. Mm -hmm. So, I, I'm not, for some reason, it always takes me by surprise. It shouldn't anymore. <laughs> we've been doing this for a while. Uh, and we've had t conversations about topics of this type before. Uh, so I don't know why it takes me by surprise, but it does. Yeah, I just, well, I just, I, um, I got, I'm frustrated by it because I can't even tell what the heck it is. That's my frustration. I think that's, that's what we need another hour yeah. just to set it and, up and talk about some and particular And it's a little unfair to Carissa and to me for you to expect <laughs> us to be, because we're not, this is a field of, of linguistics research. She's not a linguist. I'm not a linguist. Right. You're not a linguist. So expecting us to deliver on so what would a linguist say about all these things, we should try to have one on. My guess, by the way, when we try to have one on yeah. is they people will not answer my emails about inviting them on. Because <laughs> that's what people outside law tend to do, is to not even ever answer me when I write them asking them to come on the show. Uh, did you analyze the semantic meaning of your email? Maybe it wasn't actually an invitation. <laughs> Maybe it wasn't an invitation. Yeah. <laughs> so... Um, yeah, I don't know why you're... Why I'm what? what? I don't know why things are... Things should be more clear to you than you're acting like they are. Really? Yeah. I, I, so I don't know what that's I, about. I completely but... disagree with that. Okay. Yeah, in fact, clearly. In fact, I didn't... Uh, I don't think I emphasized enough. Um, the but, but one of the reasons that I held back on emphasizing the, some of the problems that I see here is because I, because I am not a linguist and I'm not familiar with this field. And I'm sure there, there are plenty of... Um, of, of methodologies which identify under the umbrella of corpus linguistics, many of which are fascinating. So I actually think corpus linguistics as a field 
devoted to the study of language using large databases and various methods is really – I mean, I think it's just super interesting. I mean, I can't yeah. wait to see what people find in bad, terms of the This is bad language. staff work on my part because I should have pointed you to some stuff that you could have looked at to get ready for our conversation with Carissa. So that was an oversight on my well, part, no, and no, I apologize no, for that. I felt completely prepared to talk about some of these cases and the way that it's been used in some of these cases. Right? Sure, which is, sure. Which is like, it's corpus linguistics if it's a computer com- tied to a bunch of texts. And then we do various things, like frequency or like within so many words, or maybe we'll do this, maybe we'll do that. But, you know, for, for me, to say something is a methodology, an empirical methodology, means that you actually have, you know, well... We're going to get back into what we were talking about with Carissa. There's no need to do that because we can jump into the conversation, right? Yep. And oralargumentpodcast at gmail.com. That, that's, that's the email that you send when you want to talk back to us, when you want to say, hey, you guys are dummies. You got it wrong. Or, boy, I enjoy the show. That would be fun to hear too, wouldn't it, Joe? It would be great. I would love that. We do hear that. We do hear that. Yeah, we We've do hear that. We've received many lovely, gracious emails from people uh, cheering us on and thanking us for what we do. In fact, and... maybe you should just do that. <laughs> <laughs> you could do anything. You could write us and say, "Here are my problems" or whatever. Oh, so with I guess what you said. The other, yeah. So oral argument podcast at gmail dot com. We've got a few emails in the mailbag. I got a podcast recommendation that came in just today from someone we both know. Oh, okay. Um, and uh, who um, I saw in person and said, "Hey, I love the podcast." Oh, that was awesome, right? It's like. How cool. Because, you know, you don't, you put this thing out there, you're not sure. You know, right. a number of people listen to it, but you're never quite sure. You know how much, so, so it's fun to hear from people. If, mm-hmm. you, if you enjoy the show or you, or it made you think about this, or if you have questions about things, or if you uh, just want to set us straight. And there's a lot of setting straight that one could do with our show. So um, I guess the, the only other thing I wanted to mention is uh, that we, that Carissa did have a few technical difficulties on the, on the mic on her end. So, um, or it was our end. It was the Skype kind of dropout thing. There were some latencies. Yeah, most of that I'll fix, but there'll be a few times where she drops out a little bit and there just isn't the information there for me to kind of patch back together in the edit. So um, right. apologies for that, but it only happens a couple times yeah. and, and you can figure it out. Like our audience, I feel like we could cut out half the podcast and they could, they oh could fill it back in, right? Uh, maybe. Like maybe we could not. say every other word. Probabilistically, sure. We could say every other word and they, it would be fine. This is an interesting illustration of some of the very things we were talking yeah. about. Did you ever see that, that little thing where like if you... Uh, what is it? If you leave the first letter the same, but you scramble the rest of the words and you can you can read the sentence just fine, doesn't really matter what the order of the letters are in. I've seen things like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So it's kind of like you that. You can do it with individual letter forms, too. You can leave some of the letter form out. Yeah. And people can still tell in context what the letter is and therefore what the word is. I don't think it works quite as dramatically with audio. Like if you just started saying... Yeah, it doesn't yeah. really work, does it? Right. Oh, man. Um, boy, what a serious, fun topic for such a goofy show as ours. I like being a goofy show, don't you? Yeah. Hmm. I'm wondering if we can do anything else goofy now, which kind of, maybe we shouldn't though, because we're about to get Carissa on the line. Yes. And and that's serious business. Well, you were about to hear us get Carissa on the line. Yeah. We actually already did it in the I past. Yeah, I didn't, I didn't want to get into the whole Inception thing though. Yeah. Uh, anything else, Joe? No, I'm, I have an arm sprain that I've Oh, Health Corner. Boom. You, and our listeners were just starting to think, hey, maybe you know Health Corner this week. <laughs> I developed the sprain like during this conversation, so I'm want to I want to stop recording. Oh, and, and a headache too, right? Mm, definitely. Mm. I, I could I could almost see as I was going on at various points the smoke pouring out of your ears, <laughs> which which only egged me on more. <laughs> uh, all right. Well, anyway, this this conversation is truly to be continued. Uh, maybe with a linguist. Uh, maybe with Carissa again. Maybe just you and me, just duking it out. Maybe all of the above, dude. 
Yeah, all of them. Maybe we'll get Larry back in there. Larry's written some stuff about this. He has indeed. Um, uh, and and uh, there are a bunch of other people too, but some of the show notes. But um, uh, anyway, enjoy. Joe, anything else? No. Okay. Can you guys hear me better or the same? Yeah, no, you sound. You actually sound really good. Okay. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I'm Hold so, on. I'm so sorry. I'm like, caused you guys so many hassles when we try to do this. No, this is, uh, this is oh, this is you've caused one one hundredth of the hassles that Joe did when we tried to bring him in remotely for that episode. <laughs> that okay. is true. That that Christmas time connection that was a disaster. It took at least we wasted at least thirty or forty minutes. Yeah, and it was all with me not being able to figure out why it wasn't. Right, and Joe's getting, of course, really frustrated, kind of at me, Carissa, kind of getting frustrated at me for because he was having problems on his end that he could not fix. Well, yeah. let's say it was your fault, Christian, and then that, it just all makes sense. Well, that's okay. how it works. Since, since Christian has decided to plunge into the details, allow me to simply relate to dear listener that he, he was saying things in a way that I interpreted as suggesting that I was doing idiotically wrong things as opposed to mysteriously and surprisingly uninterpretable things <laughs> and and i i was not doing stupid things <laughs> i was having trouble yeah that's true he was having trouble and but, um, and your some of your questions were very accusatory <laughs> and i didn't like it and i especially didn't like the third or fourth or fifth time you were posing the accusatory <laughs> questions <laughs> So, so yeah, Joe Joe takes the intentional stance and in interpretations of communications. For sure. <laughs> and, that is and, quite uh, right. <laughs> um, but it probably is also true that um, that I didn't have my most like uh, my my most generous kind of IT bedside manner on. You know, you know, like horror stories dealing with IT, and then you know, good stories dealing with IT. And it totally depends on the attitude of the IT person. Like, are they going to treat you like a dummy or not? <laughs> sure. And I probably was a little impatient, probably. I, I'm willing to admit that, but you also like you just. I think you also anticipated I was going to be kind of like you were kind of bristling against your own expectations. Yeah, there and, was, it and was, you wouldn't allow me to take control of your machine remotely to fix everything. I, both, I said I'll just do everything. I He's, both br- you know. bristled and meta bristled. I bristled at the bristling. Um, <laughs> oh, yeah. The the taking control of my key, my my screen thing was like horrific, <laughs> both because I was not expecting that request <laughs> and because it is so. It is so not how I'm going to operate in that context hmm. that, um, yeah, it was a bit, it was a bit tough. It was a bit all right. We worked through it. We got through it. We did, Carissa. But, but if you can imagine a, a conversation like, well, what do you see on your screen right now? What does that say? What is this? Because we're trying to figure out whether he's got the right version of Skype and audio media setup and all this stuff. Yeah. And I said, just let me, let's, because in messages, let me just get on there. Let me just, let me just fix this real quick. Because they were both Macs yeah. and you say so you can do that. I could just easily get in there and just, and, and make, and try to make it work. That was completely unacceptable to yeah. me. And, and the reason it was unacceptable are these kinds of, uh, like just what you're doing right now, which is, uh, it was like, it basically was upsetting because it was upsetting. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's fine. You know, this is yet another episode where we, we learn more about Joe. Yeah. yeah. And, and, Carissa, and in particular, Joe, learns, Joe, Joe learns more about Joe. Well, that's a, for a that's the, that's the work of a lifetime. I, I love learning jo- more about yourself is the work of a lifetime. I absolutely there love this comment about bristling at the bristling. That to me is like that's great progress. That is seeing mm. your own thoughts in real time. Yeah, there being, was a yeah, breakthrough there. There was a real breakthrough. I thought yeah, there was a breakthrough. This is a landmark episode, not least of which because we've got Carissa Hessick back again. Yes, I mean what? <laughs> like, well, I should say we got her back again. Carissa, you and I 
have Joe back as a guest today. That's what it feels like. It's like <laughs> yeah. All right. You were That's just on the show a little bit ago. Now, again, like in the, in, I, I don't know, how, how long ago was it that you were on the show? About four weeks, five weeks, six weeks? Yeah, I think that's right. Uh, and, and I would have been back even sooner, except that for the first time ever, I like genuinely lost my voice and had to whisper, yes. um, which was very strange because I, I didn't realize how much I talk. Um, <laughs> I talk all the time. And my small children kept talking about how quiet it was in the house that weekend. <laughs> well, I, <laughs> that's hilarious. That, that is the one um, bona fide occupational qualification for the show is that you have a voice or, or at least, a, you know, if you were adept in like using text to speech or something like, you know, we can make accommodations. But oh, like, yeah, there you go. Um, uh, but this was a short term disability on your part. So there right. was no it chance was. to do that. And, and given my lack of ability with Skype, I'd, I'd hate to see me, see me try to take on a new technology like, <laughs> like yeah, text yeah. to voice <laughs> software. It, it's not a mere weekend endeavor, I think, to, to learn yeah. how to do that. Um, uh, but. But we, we're having you back on for a completely different topic. And actually, this topic today, I don't know. I feel like I'm jumping right into it. I feel like there should be more yeah. nonsense first. No, no. Jump oh, right in. Okay, okay. Jump right in. Okay, are you sure? Yeah, uh, because that means I don't have to, and I don't have to at some point decide to shift us to the topic, and then you complain about the fact that I just did that. <laughs> oh so this, this way we'll just get there, right? This episode is so meta. A really meta episode. <laughs> I, I'm enjoying this. Um so a couple of weeks ago, I don't know if you if you heard, uh, Carissa, but we had Larry Solom on the show uh, about um, uh, about basically about originalism. It's a paper about different kinds of originalism, what differentiates them, and then what differentiates various kinds of living constitutionalism. So, so uh, what we're going to talk to you about today is not necessarily about originalism with respect to constitutionals uh, to constitutional questions, because I think there's also a statutory angle to this, and maybe that's the more important one. In the well, maybe not. I don't know what the most important is. But we're going to talk to you about corpus linguistics. Which is like, which sounds like maybe like dead a study of dead languages. Is that what it is? <laughs> the corpus linguistics is so funny because if somebody had said uh, the phrase corpus linguistics to me about two and a half years ago, I wouldn't have known what they were talking about at all. Um, but I was at a, a conference and um, and Gordon Smith, who's now the the dean at BYU, was at the same conference, and I suspect. Gordon did something that I often do when I'm at conferences with people, which is I go to their faculty webpage and start just finding out things about them because it makes it easier to talk to people during like the coffee breaks and stuff like that. Oh, sure. Okay. If Um, we can just hit pause here, I need to go update my faculty (laughs) 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 profile. I do not. I pay zero attention to my own faculty profile page for the most part. That may interfere with your coffee break conversation at conferences. Yes, apparently so. Maybe this is why nobody talks to me at conferences. I don't know. (laughs) But so as as Gordon was looking at this, he saw that um, my undergraduate degree is um, is in linguistics, uh, which really was just that, um, you know, I didn't like my English classes as much as I thought I was going to. And the, you know, the the criteria that you needed to get um, to major in history were sort of too onerous. And I really liked the random linguistics class that I took. So I took several more classes and it ended up being uh, my major in college, and he asked me to come out to to BYU as a as a commenter. Um, they they now have this annual conference on corpus linguistics and the law. And since he said I knew at least a tiny bit about linguistics, I could come and be one of the commenters. And that's really the only reason that that I found out about corpus linguistics and and started and and realized that there are people out there um, who are pushing for this. Um, this new way of, of solving legal questions. So I think given your linguistics undergrad experience, it makes sense that 
um, Gordon would say, hey, you know, come comment on these on this paper or whatever at this annual conference. By the way, my sense is that BYU, because of the uh, the central location there are people who work in corpus linguistics on things like the Corpus of Contemporary American English and the Corpus of Historical American English, and there's now a Corpus of Federalist Era English. Um, they, they, it is a huge center of corpus linguistics research. Yeah, I mean, that's that's my impression. I, I know that they have a number of people outside the law school who are working on various corpora and then... The law school itself, I think, under especially under Gordon's leadership, um, has really uh, started putting a lot of time and attention into the relationship uh, between corpus linguistics and the law. Yeah, which I think is, uh, as someone who is uh, who thinks that some of these tools and some of these methods could offer useful and interesting possibilities, uh, although of course also present some challenges. Um, I think that's great that that uh, potential connection is being explored and that they've now had a few years of these annual conferences and will probably continue to do so. I think that's uh, potentially very, very fruitful. Well, so let's talk, what is corpus linguistics? Why don't we, why don't we start there? Let's let let's let Joe give a little bit of an overview. I think yeah, I, there we go. I think he knows a lot more about it than I do. No, I don't think that's true. You you have a linguistics degree. I don't have a linguistics <laughs> degree. Come on, I'm, I'm happy to do it. Corpus linguistics is what happens. Oh, you know, maybe after a certain branch of linguistics dies, it takes about a month. <laughs> it's the um, so a, a corpus is just that is not a funny joke, by the way. Not really. We're not known for our funny jokes. A so. corpus is just a set of texts. So. Linguistics and linguistics is, you know, the study of language. So corpus linguistics is studying language by using a set of texts. Now, what, what other way is there? Of course, right. So what? It, so that uh, another way to define it would be, uh, and, and I think uh, probably a better way uh, would be, it's doing that with the use of computer technology, right? So corpus linguistics is a a result of the fact that computing has become uh, pervasive and cheap. Uh, and there was a time when, early in the history of corpus linguistics, when you could count the number of texts and, uh, in, in a given corpus, uh, and, and it wouldn't be very big, uh, and it would still be quite labor-intensive to do the sort of uh, computational work that you can do when you have a large number of texts in a corpus, or the plural of which is corpora, as Chris has already said. Um, but now that computing is uh, ubiquitous and cheap, uh, you can have corpora with millions and millions of texts that contain mi- millions and millions and millions and millions of words. Um, and you can do analyses of usage of uh, language using those sets of texts and discover lots of interesting patterns, uh, gather interesting data about usage patterns. And an important thing that it does that I think is especially germane here is that it helps you to see the sense in which the word is the wrong unit of analysis for meaning. That, or if, if not the wrong unit of analysis, perhaps not the most uh, illuminating one. Rather, uh, it's phrases and sentences uh, rather than just words 
taken one at a time. Uh, and when you've got a way to very quickly assemble uh, thousands of examples of the usage of a particular word and the words immediately surrounding it as a way to explore uh, how a particular verb or noun or adjective or adverb or what have you uh, is getting used. And indeed, when you can not only do that, but you can search by parts of speech, you can uh, take all the examples of a stem of a word uh, and, and look at all the possibilities, variations of it at a time. I mean, it, it is it is just an incredibly rich set of tools for getting a, a look at a very large amount of information about usage at a at a kind of at a snap. Yeah. So I think a really excellent description about what we're able to do with these giant databases of language, right? We're able to look at how words and phrases have been used in the past in a really, sorry, there's a giant thunderstorm here now. So that's all the, the weird. Of course there is. <laughs> of course there is. Um, but yeah, so that's, um, that's, I think, for people who study language usage, I think that the development of these databases is an unmitigated positive, and it's it's really, really fantastic for them. I am uh, skeptical of how these corpus linguistic searches can help or should help resolve legal questions. Which and is exactly so, why I thought you were a great person to talk to, because I can tell <laughs> from what you wrote for that 2017 conference and some stuff I've done uh, using corpus linguistics and some scholarship I've written, I can tell that you are much more skeptical of it than I am. And that is why you are exactly who we should be talking to, because that way we're getting different perspectives on um, on, on its utility and some of its the critiques you could make of using it. Um, let me say one more thing before we kind of get to your what you wrote and your critiques. And I got some... another thing to say before we get to that too. Okay, so, cool. Yeah. So my other thing though is um, there's a sense in which this all should feel very, very familiar to lawyers who have been using things like Westlaw and Lexis for a long Definitely. time because those are corpora, right? They, they are sets of texts gathered together, they're computer searchable using search strings, and you can look at series of examples of things, you can find usage in cases, in journal articles, and whatever. Um, so there's a sense in which, and maybe this is uh, why it's tempting and even more perilous, right? Um, there's a sense in which lawyers have been already doing corpus linguistics for a long time without realizing it, and without having some of the tools but having others of the tools. Christian, what was your thing? Um, I, 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 um, yeah. Is cor so is corpus linguistics just an umbrella term for using a database of words? No. Uh, it's, it's more specific than that. And in what way? Because it, it seems to not describe a method at all. It seems to describe a set of methods which are unified by the fact that they use a certain kind of database. So in other words, like, wouldn't using a dictionary be corpus linguistics? No. Um, so I actually, uh, I think that there's a law review paper out there that talks about using dictionaries as a corpus. But I think that most people would not say, think that looking something up in the dictionary is, is using, is, is the same sort of thing that a corpus linguistics search would get you. So what if I use like three dictionaries? I mean, 
or three dictionaries and and how and and well, right, a dictionary and, and is a text. Yeah. So you could have a corpus of, that was built up of dictionaries as texts. Yeah. Um, right. it, it is a it's a set of tools, a set of methods, uh, interfaces that uh, user interfaces that are designed to help you use those tools and methods. Uh, so it's a set of practices among linguists who ask certain kinds of questions. Um, and so, uh, so I don't know how to answer your... Well, it just seems to me, so, you know, in, it, in, in mathematics, if you have, for example, a method, right? So you, you're trying to answer a certain set of questions, like, yeah. you know, how fast does something go, or what is the array of, like, uh, temperatures in a certain field? And so you have a kind of, you have a differential equation to solve or something like that. And there are different methods for solving those equations in when you want real answers out of them, but you can't you can't solve them as a matter analytically as they say you can't solve them exactly. Right. And so one of those is like there's this thing called the finite element method where you kind of break it up into a certain kind of grid. You do some fancy math, some fancy discrete uh, um, uh, uh, numerical analysis to uh, to come out with an answer. Now that's a method because it's a particular way of of replacing the differential equation with with um, uh, basically linear algebra calculations in order to get something, right? Right. And so that describes a particular method. Um, but you wouldn't say that you have a, a method for answering a question if what you're pointing to is just a set of data about which you're asking a question. And it seems to me that, like, when you when you described corpus linguistics a second ago, it was that you have a large group of texts that you do something with to answer. Right, and it's the do something that I think is the interesting part. They're texts that are interesting because they are examples of people using the language. Uh, So they're not artificially created texts; they're texts collected from people actually engaging in language use. So when you're studying usage Mm -hmm. uh, phenomena and you are doing things like probing the frequency of use of certain words. when you're doing things like examining how that word is used in context by looking at very a very large number of examples of its use in context, when you're doing things like uh, studying the words that tend to be co-located with that word, mm-hmm. again, as a way to... So you're studying usage of language. Um, I don't feel... So, so corpus linguistics, you or not yeah, well, so, you? so under that definition, so we could, you know, we could exclude maybe... When you say artificial, like everything is artificial, but I think you mean it's it, what it was. It's language used to convey meaning other than the meanings of the words used therein, right? So a dictionary, you know, is someone who's consciously thinking about the meanings of the words they're using in a particular place and trying to provide other words in order to right. at least at least indicate which words mean kind of the same things. But if you know, if you take a novel, the words therein and the phrases therein are used to tell a story or. Uh, or perhaps for some other purpose, and therefore yeah. you can think of that as more natural, even though like both are constructed, right? And yeah. and oftentimes in literature, people will use words in order to give those words meaning. Like they'll construct new words, or they'll use them in funny ways. And so they're, Ooh, they it, it's not, it's not sure. meaning agnostic. But right. um, uh, and and so still though, it seems like corpus linguistics is you know maybe you could use computers. Maybe it's more useful with computers. It's just like a set of texts, and then it's any method that you might use, or at least a huge set of methods, which is not specified, that would use those texts somehow in order to build um, uh, or to answer a particular question about the meaning of something else. In other words, you want to you have some phrase, and you're going to say, okay, what what are some what are some things which could mean the same thing as this? And in order to answer that question, you consult some other texts 
so I actually, um, I think it's probably useful here to try to distinguish between what linguists would say that corpus linguistics does and what lawyers might want to use it for. I mean, I think that um, linguists are just trying to make descriptive claims about how words have appeared in the past. Right. Right. So they like to trace like the the history, like the evolution of of a word. When was the first time that we started using a word a particular way? Whereas I think as lawyers, we're trying to make um, we're trying to make more general claims about the meaning of words at a particular time. And because of that, I mean, I think that there's you know, there there are a number of linguists who have collaborated with law professors and lawyers who are interested in using corpus linguistics as a tool for the law. But there are other linguists who are highly skeptical of the idea that a word has, you know, a all caps meaning. So I think, you know, it, it, this is starting to get abstract very quickly, and I'm sure it will only get more abstract as we talk. But I think it's really important to sort of like figure out what we're trying to do with these giant databases of language as it's appeared. If we just want to make claims about how people have used language in the past, then having lots and lots and lots of examples of word uses is just super helpful. But if we're trying to figure out what a particular word means or what people would understand it to mean, then we're getting well past what the databases themselves can tell us. And we have to start worrying about inferences that we're drawing as well. I think linguists might also do things that are more general than, you know, what a particular, uh, how a particular word or phrase was used in the sense that, uh, for example, in these corpora, the words are tagged as parts of speech. Mm-hmm. And so you can look at how are verbs being used in general? How are nouns being used in general? How how do, uh, you know, comparing regular verbs versus ir- irregular verbs and their usage in a particular language? We, we're talking now about English mm-hmm. uh, corpora, English language corpora, right. um, filled with newspapers and magazines and other examples of texts that, as you say, Christian, are are designed to communicate with people about something other than the meanings of the words they contain. So we're contrasting away a dictionary. Right. Um, But if you think that meaning is usage based, then, Mm -hmm. you know, having a a massive database of how people have been using the words in the language um, when they're just trying to communicate with each other uh, is a big window on meaning. Well, If, if you think meaning is usage based. Yeah, it depends on what you think "mean" means, and and what 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 of meaning what, what meaning means de- <laughs> depends on the circumstance very much, right? So that's why I think that it's it's useful to at the outset as 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 lawyers to to ask to ask very clearly, okay, what question are we trying to answer? Sure, and then to say, well, would it be relevant if we analyzed a lot of other kinds of data in a particular way? And so I think. You know, for me, it's all about what method. The fact that you use a large database, that's all to the good because the method is going to pick and choose from that database on its own anyway. But it's the specification of that method which seems to me important. And so what I, what I read in Chris's piece, and I, it, I, I, you know, when you were going to come on the show a few weeks ago, I read some of those blog posts. I've forgotten everything that I read, Carissa. I've forgotten it all. <laughs> but I did look back over your, your article again quickly. So, you know, you point out people use this, um, um, you know. You, you can probe the deba- database in what Joe described earlier as kind of Westlaw-like ways. You can, um, but in, but but you can go further. You can look at the frequency with which two words appear near each other um, in in very very large databases of text. Um, and if if you draw an inference from that, like um, in in the case involving discharge of a weapon, um, and this is a, a famous case for 
corpus linguistics people, right? This is the one out of Utah. Is that right? Yeah. Um, and the question is, does does to discharge a weapon, does that mean, um, I, I guess it could mean several things. One thing it could mean is to fire a single bullet from it. It could also mean to, uh, to empty it completely of ammunition. Um, I guess it could mean to eject it from your body. <laughs> I guess it could mean to um, to uh, to terminate its services, right? I mean, there there you discharge has a lot of right. potential meanings. But um, if the if the if we have a statute that says you know it's an it's a crime, it, it's a misdemeanor or it's a felony to discharge right. a weapon in a public park or something along those lines, the question is like, well, what 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 it, what kinds of conduct is prohibited by that? So if you have a particular instance yeah. of conduct, we could ask, okay, is it covered by this uh, this prohibition on discharging weapon in a park. And as lawyers, we're in a situation where, you know, had the governing municipal code said in your hypothetical, right, it, had the governing municipal code said instead of saying discharge a weapon, if it had said fire a weapon, right, some cases would be easier, some cases would be harder, right? If mm-hmm. it had said empty a weapon, some cases would be easier, some cases would be harder, right? That we're in the situation we're in as lawyers, that some cases are easy and some are hard because certain words were chosen by a legislature enacting a positive provision, right? Um, And lawyers have a habit of (laughs) taking whatever the statute or regulation or whatever that is arguably governing and trying to problematize some of the words in it or phrases in it, um, because it's to their client's advantage that it be read one way rather than another way. Those, mm-hmm. those are the arguments we constantly find ourselves in the middle of as lawyers. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and before before we move past the 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 question of what it is that corpus linguistics is as a methodology, I I think it's actually really important to note that um, that that's kind of an open question, right? To the extent that lawyers have started using these giant databases of language, there's been disagreement about what more specific methodology they ought to use to be able to derive the meaning of the word. So, you know, there's a big fight right now over um, what the definition of the word emoluments ought to be. And there are some people who study corpus, some lawyers who study corpus linguistics um, who say it means one thing. There are other lawyers who meet, who say that it ought to mean something else. They're looking at the same database, but they're making different choices about the types of searches that they run and um, the sorts of conclusions that they draw from the results that they get. So personally, as a lawyer, right, I think it's super important to be very clear about the fact that um, just because you have a giant database of things, it doesn't tell you what that database ought to do and how it ought to help you answer questions. Yeah, that's a very succinct way of putting the point that <laughs> that I was trying to push uh, Joe on in the beginning is that, like, to me, um, the to say it's computers plus a large databases database of text like tells you nothing about whether you think that it's valuable in any way. Like, it's nothing without being a methodology. Right. Yeah. And, and so if you're do so it's it's a very different proposition to say, should we use corpus linguistics to answer this legal question? If what you mean by that is we're going to use frequency data in a Westlaw kind of way over an entire corpus containing certain texts from uh, the past 200 years or, you know, uh, or, or a methodology which only looks at a slice of that. 
or a methodology that invents, like, suppose we've got a methodology that, that uses a very large database of text and then uh, creates a, a construct called, like, semantic velocity, which kind of measures the change in meaning of a, you know, the, ch- the change in, not meaning, because that's the thing we're aiming at, but the, but the kind of the change in appearance of the word relative to other words over time. And therefore, if a word was coined in, or used in a, in a statute in 1940, maybe we can kind of extrapolate from that semantic velocity to kind of predict what it might mean 20 years in the future or now, right? I mean, there are all kinds of things that you can do with a database which are much more complicated than um, did this word appear next to that word. Um, and, and That's, that's yeah. quite true. Um, I think one advantage that having a, a computer-assisted way of dealing with a very large set of texts of, of, of conventional English language usage it has over um, not consulting it, um, even when you're not doing fancy things like <laughs> coming up with something like semantic velocity or or, or uh, some other thing, which sounds kind of fun um, on its own. Uh, but but one thing you can do is you can um, gather information that is superior to to simply accessing salient examples in your own mind, uh, because. It seems to me that I think we could all agree at the outset that whatever examples you can remember from your own set of experiences based on your current ability to recall things and whatever is salient to you now, right, um, that those will be potentially helpful and potentially useful, but but can't really be as comprehensive or or reliably as comprehensive as well-defined and you'd have to talk about all those things, right? How it was defined, how was the text gathered, how is it being processed, et cetera. Um, but you have access to uh, information about the same sort of phenomenon, how was it used, but, but accessing things way beyond your simple intuitive, spontaneous consultation of salient examples in your own mind today, right? Right, and that, again, that depends on what question you're asking. And, of, and, of course it does. Right, and, and it depends on the method that you're using. So whether, whether, whether consulting your own mind about the meaning of a word for a particular purpose is better than using the corpus completely depends on the method by which you're consulting the corpus. Like wh- what? Of course it does. Right. And, and by the way, the, cons- the, the, the way in which you're consulting your own mind, right? I mean, someone who's had a lot of experience reading a particular kind of document might have a lot of salient well, examples yeah. that are quite germane relative to someone who's had no experience. Let me, let me just give, here's a trivial example of a, of a really bad corpus um, uh, linguistics <laughs> methodology. Okay, this is a trivial example, but okay. like, you could easily extend it to, you can see, get closer to something which sounds more reasonable, but obviously there's a spectrum. And here's my method. You take the corpus of as many texts as you can gather, and, um, and if you want to know what a word means, you pick a word at random from the corpus, and that's what it means. Yeah, that would be a bad way to use it. It would be a ter- that's a that's I can't imagine a worse method. That's right. right? But 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 to just go back to the very the that um what we were just talking about in terms of um this being superior to intuition, I just I'd like to just put a fine point on the way in which it's superior. It's superior, I agree, in identifying different ways that that word might be used. That's, I think, what it's superior at doing, right? Exactly, because I might be able to think of six different ways right. to use that word, which would show me there were actually two more that hadn't occurred to me. Yeah. And now, so, by the way, I'm also being very specific there and talking about how a word is used as opposed to what a word means, because in my opinion, 
looking at the how a word appears lots and lots of different times doesn't necessarily tell me what that word means. I still have to infer based on the words surrounding that particular word what the word means in context. So the the database can't do that for me. I still have to do that as like a person. Yeah, that sounds right to me. Uh, that that meaning um, is something we ascribe, something we impute. Usage uh, is usage information can inform the meaning we would want to ascribe. Um, sure. I think I'm I think I'm with you there, and I think also I I, I very much agree that um, a if not the main way in which the the uh, database information is superior to consulting your intuition is if you're trying to m- get a sense of the full range of uh, meanings, full range of usages uh, that inform a f- the full range of inferences of meaning you would want to ascribe, right? Um, rather than having only part of it. That yep. you as an individual... Now, so get, bring this back to law, right? If we're back at our debate about discharge a firearm um, mm-hmm. and... A judge is being asked uh, in the context of a motion in a case where the person fired only one bullet and the argument is, hey, wait a minute, discharge means you have to empty it completely and I didn't do that. Or contrary-wise, right? The person empties all of them and says, no, no, discharge is only applicable if you fire one and only one round, right? Um, That judge can consult his or her intuition, can consult how discharge is used in a bunch of different statutes could consult how discharge is used in a bunch of cases, maybe cases about this very statute, maybe about some related statute. And corpus linguistics offers another set of things that could be consulted in the effort to give meaning in the context of this dispute to that particular legislation. Let me try to make it concrete. So I when, thought I just did, when but we I say, guess not. No, no, no. I'm going to take your example and, and extend it. So so when you say, like, you know, does it mean, uh, does discharge mean to uh, um, fire a single bullet or all the bullets or something else, right? When we say, do, what does it mean? What we really are, are saying, I think, is does this phrase, discharge a weapon, mean the same thing as this other phrase? And typically when we interpret in law, all we're really doing is we're transforming and we're suggesting they are equivalent one phrase into another phrase where the latter phrase, the phrase as we, you know, that the, 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 the product of our interpretation is one that we think so obviously justifies what we're about to do legally that it, nothing need be added, right? So mm. if, uh, and so... Yeah, that could be a good summary of what meaning, we're doing. Sure. I mean, This is the sense in which meaning is kind of an equivalence class. It's like all the things that have, that we think intuitively mean the same thing, right? right. So, so this phrase, uh, discharge a weapon, uh, means... To fire a single bullet, right? So those, or if we think that those, uh, or to, rather than empty a magazine, right, right. So if you think that those are, are expressing the same thing in this context, then we would say they have the same meaning. Right. And so, in order to know that, though, um, and Chris's paper goes into this, like there's there's a normative point that has to be made, right? And and that is like, um, whose whose equivalence are we looking at? Whose equivalence relation is it? Is it what the judge thinks? There may be reasons to, to give that to the judge deciding now, whether yeah. it's lenity or something else or notice. Like if you're really concerned about notice, what we care about is like, you know, maybe what people would think in general now. And maybe the judge could be a representative for that. If not, maybe we want to we want to consult all the texts available now to see what people think discharge means now. Yeah. But we might have a theory about legislative supremacy, which suggests it should mean kind of what the legislature would want it to mean. And we could, again, mean what the legislature would think now, in which case maybe our corpus should be like all the laws written by the legislature now. Do they use discharge with weapon a lot or not? You could do some kind of method there. 
Or maybe if the statute was passed in 1920, we might ask, well, maybe what we want is what the legislature intended for it to mean then, this original intent idea, in which case our corpus needs to be like all the 1920 laws and other things that legislators around that time and people of their class might have said. Or we might be, as is you know, in, as in vogue in uh, originalism in at least co- constitutional circles, but also some statutory ones, is we might care about what the public would have thought, the audience for that original communication would have thought was meant by discharge of weapon, in which case we want to look at a 1920s era corpus to see how were people using discharge back then. That all sounds, extru- that all sounds highly plausible as a range of options and choices we might be making. I agree with you that it is teeming with normative argumentation which one of those things you would pick and why. Right. And so I think I would join Carissa in what I imagine she would say, and she'll tell us right now, right? <laughs> let's just, any, let's just anyone do the rest of the podcast thinks, imagining what Carissa any, might say. Anyone, <laughs> anyone, who thinks, anyone who thinks that using corpus linguistics is a way to have fewer rather than more normative questions is very inexperienced with corpus linguistics. Among other things, guilty right? that that the, it is not a way to avoid normative questions or have fewer of them at all. At least not to me. That's not my impression from it at all. Right. So I I agree that it's not a way to avoid normative questions, but I'd even um, I'd even say that I don't I don't think that it provides us an answer to. Um, to the questions that are implicated by your normative question, right? So imagine for a second that we had um, this statute about discharging a weapon and it was enacted in 1920. And we have made the normative decision that what we care about is the original public meaning of that statute. So I'm putting the normative question to one side. Okay. I don't think that these databases answer the public meaning question for us. And, and there are lots and lots and lots of reasons why. Do they inform it? If they, maybe they don't answer it, but do they inform our answer? I am highly dubious of whether they inform our answer. Okay. Because what we're what we're really trying to do, right, is we're really trying to get at when somebody in 1920, if somebody in 1920 had read that language, what do what would they have thought was being criminalized there, right? Is it is it one shot equals one charge? Is it um you know or something else? And I, looking at the database returns doesn't necessarily tell us. Looking at the database returns just tells us how the word discharge was used in lots and lots of situations and how I might understand something as it's written down in one circumstance isn't answered by how often or how frequently the word is used differently elsewhere. If I, I feel like I'm being really unclear. So well, let me let me give you an example from... Um, let me give you an example from one of the briefs that was filed recently in the emolument stuff. They were saying, like, look, if you're using an adjective to modify the word emolument, then that suggests that the word emolument doesn't ordinarily mean that on its own. And so they give the example of you don't usually see somebody using the phrase metal fork because we all understand if you're saying fork that you mean it's a metal fork. And I guess I just... That's an inference. That's a pretty big inference to make that if you don't ordinarily modify a word with an adjective, then the word doesn't mean that thing without the adjective. It, it doesn't seem to suggest that to me at all. I mean, somebody might hand me a plastic fork and say, here's a fork. And I'm like, whoa, wait a second. In my mind, I think a fork is made out of metal. <laughs> like, 
figuring out how often people used the word fork and told us whether it was a metal fork or a plastic fork can not tell us what people are going to think about when they see the word fork. But it I, feel surely, like, I feel like the fork example isn't helping me. <laughs> well, no, it is. But I, I, I find this. Um, so if if it if we looked across a put a statute aside, if we looked at a, just an enormous number of examples uh, over a few years of texts from magazines and newspapers and other sorts of similar novels and uh, textbooks for uh, anything other than language, um, just authors trying to communicate successfully with their readers. Um, and we saw that uh, we looked at the word fork and we looked at the words that commonly occur uh, in the vicinity of fork. Uh, and we saw that, you know, a fork, that happens a lot. The fork happens a lot. Uh, plastic fork happens a lot. Uh, Not the phrase in metal fork, it doesn't. Excuse me? Not in 1920, it doesn't. <laughs> Take whatever that, date you want, yeah. all right? Yeah. Um, so, um, but, but plastic fork a lot. Metal fork almost never. Uh, I, I think that knowing that, knowing those facts about the the prevailing usage and the frequency of occurrence of certain phrases would inform, <laughs> wouldn't it, your sense of the, the, the fact that when someone refers to a fork without using a word that indicates the substance of which it's fabricated, that that they, they probably aren't referring to plastic and probably are referring to metal. But it, so just, just probabilistically, with, right? Depending on your question. problem with that example. Here's my problem with that example. We don't know what types of forks those were that people were referring to. So we don't know how often the unmodified fork was plastic and how often it was metal. We don't have that information. Th that is we a, are yeah. right now inferring something like, oh, well, the word plastic appeared more often than the word metal appeared. And so therefore, I, I'm assuming that there are a lot of metal. And the fact that they weren't often saying metal fork must mean that when they said fork, that they meant metal fork. Look, think. Not that it might. You see like, I, Carissa, all of the work that my intuitions are doing there? <laughs> Carissa, Maybe you, they're <laughs> often saying plastic fork. And maybe they're sometimes saying metal fork because they more often had plastic forks than metal forks. And maybe the times when they didn't specify fork, it was evenly split. Like we don't have the empirical information that we would need to be able to infer what the absence of that information means. I, I think it is interesting and a, and a, a, different, um, a different approach here that a word I have heard you say a few times now and a word you have not heard me say until just now is the word must. Um, I think the force of the inference we're looking for, and uh, I think of the corpus linguistics uh, results being about probabilities, and I agree with you, absolutely, you can't know for sure, um, In I think, in any of the instances other than the ones where the person says plastic fork, that they were referring to a plastic fork. Right. Um, all, in all the other instances, were they maybe saying referring to a plastic fork without using the word plastic? Of course, they might have been uh, a metal one without using the word metal. Of course, they might have been. Um, but 
if we're looking for simply probabilities and and likelihoods and where the contrast the baseline that we're contrasting it with is unaided intuition versus intuition plus information from a database i i think i want the second well yeah, but the, the question I want the is intuition plus yeah, the database but do do the um do the probabilities that you generate depend on the question so suppose that um uh, suppose we had something like magnetic re- uh, resonance, resonance imaging um, uh, back in the 1920s. I don't know some some big magnet thing back in the 1920s, and there was a <laughs> there, there was a rule saying that you couldn't you know um, uh, no swords, no belt buckles, no forks, no knives in the in the magnet room, right? And 1970 for the first time, someone wants to eat in there or something like that, and they want to bring in their plastic fork. And the question is, does is the plastic fork banned? Um, by this rule. <laughs> you know, they, there were no plastic forks at the time, and so no one ever used the word metal forks because I imagine I imagine the word metal fork was maybe used a lot when in the transition from, like, wood forks to metal forks. <laughs> Although <laughs> I imagine the transition from wood to metal, um, you know, didn't involve forks so much. But um, so, so I think that sometimes adjectives come into play and then fall out of, of use uh, as tr- such kind of tr- social transitions are occurring. I imagine. I'm not a linguist. I don't know. I'm just making all this up, really. But... Um, uh, but so it seems to me that the probability that the forks rule, that the no forks rule, w- that what is meant by no fork is a fork of any kind, right, depends greatly on on what question we're asking and the specific question we're asking and the context, because we might consult the very same corpus to ask what it means when someone says, you know, you don't eat with your hands, always use a fork, right? That those are two rules. Like one is no forks in the magnet room and the other is don't eat with your hands, eat with a fork. Yep. Right, and one of those clearly refers only to metal forks, and the other includes both kinds of forks. And corpus linguistics doesn't help us at all. I think, and you know, it, it's going to get one of those questions wrong. Yeah, and actually, just to go back to the idea from just a second ago that um, intuition alone is um, is less preferable than intuition plus the database. I'm not so sure. I agree. Um, so, and that's because. When you have these returns from the database about fork, right, some of them say plastic, some of them say metal, some of them say nothing. And what we're trying to do is we're trying to construe a statute that says fork. It doesn't say plastic and it doesn't say metal. What are we supposed to do with those database returns? If we just look at the database returns that tell us metal or plastic, that doesn't tell us what's meant by fork when it's not modified by anything. And if we try to start inferring from the database returns that don't specify metal or plastic, if they meant metal or plastic, then we are just compounding the same intuition problem that we have in interpreting the statute in the first instance, which is it doesn't tell us what do we think it might mean. And if instead what we do is we say, okay, fine, we have to exclude all the references of forks that aren't modified by metal or plastic, then what, and we can say, look, the references of plastic are more common than the references of metal or vice versa, having what we've really done is, um, is given us ourselves information about the number of forks that were metal or plastic when somebody decided to tell us when they were metal or plastic. I just, 
or, or, or the frequency of situations in which the the distinction was salient. I mean, maybe it was salient. Maybe it wasn't salient. I mean, I don't know. Like, if you're including like novels, I mean, I don't, I don't know why <laughs> somebody chooses to include descriptors in their novel, right? And they say that it was like a a, a cotton candy colored sky. I mean, but isn't there a, a point though that? Um, so, for example, if if with the discharge of weapon, if we were normatively committed to original public meaning. And so if we could somehow determine whether the people in 1920 would have definitively thought discharge meant to fire uh, all the rounds in a all, all the bullets in a gun, whereas, you know, if we consult today, suppose there's no question that today it means fire, you know, in every situation in which it's used with respect to a gun, it means fire one bullet. But we found in uh, going back to the corpora in existence, various corpora in, in, in existence in 1920, Many, many references to people saying, while, you know, while two bullets were fired, the gun was not discharged uh, and other such sentences. And, you know, so that a variety of different methods that we might apply to one corpus or another would all point in the same direction that people around in 1920, when this law was passed, all thought it meant to discharge a weapon completely. And, and, and maybe that, so we would ask, oh, that's weird, because it seems like you would pass a law about firing guns in parks to, you know, that it shouldn't depend on the number of bullets in a gun. It should just depend on whether uh, a single bullet was fired. Um, but maybe we would go back and find that there was some weird purpose that they had in the 1920s. And that's the, now you might say, well, of course, like, why should we be bound by that? You know, it seems more, notice seems like a more important purpose than that. But again, I'm assuming that we are somehow normatively committed to original public meaning of this statute. It seems there like corpus linguistics would, or some method applied to a corpus would help us uh, answer that question. Um, in that situation, in other words, whether it's helpful or not kind of depends on the questions the question being asked, and it depends on how, you know, whether the methods point all in the same direction. And here I'm pointing to at least one situation where maybe you could determine it's helpful. I realize, and because you analyze this discharge weapon in the paper, and they point in slightly different directions, but um, would you concede that if we could find that, it would be helpful and surprising? Yeah. So I think it would be surprising because, um, because people, because I would be shocked if you had a really, 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 really big corpus if all of the usages pointed in a single direction yeah because that's not what's happened so far right and all uh, every time we have somebody who's trying to use this corpus analysis um in in to to do like a legal interpretation they are finding oh well you know 65 percent cut this way as or 30 percent cut that way and 70 percent cut this other way so what it really sort of boils down to is it boils down to um Am I just supposed to say, well, it happened more frequently, and so I'm going to say that it's a better bet to interpret it that way? That doesn't doesn't strike me as such a great idea. I mean, maybe if it were like 99% versus 1%, I might feel differently. But the other thing that's really important, right, is um, is this idea that in doing the analysis to try to figure out what the terms mean when they're returned in the corpus searches – People have to do the same sort of inferences that they have to do when they're interpreting the statutes in the first instance. So if you don't think that people should be relying, if you don't think that judges should be relying on their intuition to interpret a statute, I'm not sure why we would want to rely on intuition to interpret 1,300 database results. Well, look, I think 
when I was referring to intu intuition before, I was referring to calling to your mind salient instances of usages of particular words, right? Mm -hmm. So, and not about judgments made once you have in mind those instances. So, so I think we want to trust uh, decision makers in all kinds of instances, including judges, making decisions, making judgments from uh, or making judgments based on, informed by, um, a, a range of examples that they can call to their mind, right? So it's in the sec it's the second thing, not the, it's not the judgment being made that I think can be improved, it's the information over which the judgment is made that I think can be um, altered by consulting a range of things. So I think a judge who, for example, says, you know what, I'm very experienced, um, we can we can call this imaginary judge uh, Posner, uh, and this judge says I'm very experienced. I don't need to do legal research anymore. I've been doing this for a long time. I'm just going to decide things, and I'm on board. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and I'm going to decide it based I, I, on the on stuff board. I can remember, right? Yeah. And that judge making judgments, I would say, okay, I think those judgments could be improved if you inform them with a larger set of material that not just the things you can call to your mind, but those plus the things that you would have available if you did some legal research. Uh, and maybe some of the lawyers would help you and they give you some briefs and they'll point you to those things. So that, I think that's the discussion we're having, isn't I mean, it? I don't think so. And and here's why. So by the way, that's a really compelling example. But so let me tell you why I don't think it's, <laughs> I don't think it's relevant. So I think that you and I both agree that these databases are helpful in identifying different ways that words might be used. But that's not the decision that judges usually have to make. Judges aren't usually asked, can you please tell us all of the different ways that this word might be used? No, they're being asked, does this statute apply this way or not this way? Because there are two parties in front of them and they're litigating an issue. So the parties are already going to identify the possible meanings that are relevant in the case. Yep. So I have a hard time understanding what the corpus research, because what the judge has to do is the judge has to decide between the two possible meanings and the people who are pushing for corpus linguistics to play a role in legal interpretation are telling us that corpus linguistics searches and corpus linguistics analysis can aid judges in choosing between possible meanings. And that makes me very uncomfortable. Yeah, and I agree with you. I'm not sure that it can do that. I think the, I think the some of the people who are advocates for using uh, corpus linguistics, I mean, I think there are some extravagant claims out there about the utility of corpus linguistics. Um, m my sense is it, it, it may have its best use in helping rule out certain things. So for example, um, if, if, a, if a judge were to think that an advocate is arguing for a, an interpretation or a construction of a legal phrase um, and the judge says, you know what, that just sounds kind of bonkers to me. That, that just doesn't sound like how people talk or how that term is used. And if you can assemble um, a, a set of examples and instances that show, actually, Judge, a lot of people use the f word or term that way a lot of the time. And, and here are the instances of that, right? And it's not just me fabricating examples. This is actual usage, right? Um, I think it rules out, in that sense, the idea that the advocate's proffered construction is... Um, 
is atypical or inane or unusual. I think another thing it could rule out. Well, well, can so I pause you there for a Can I stop you there for one second? Sure. I, it depends on what you mean by atypical. And I totally appreciate that that may have a special meaning um, in, in patent litigation. But atypical, the way I would use the word as sort of a non-patent person, just means unusual. And I think that it would be difficult for a litigant to be able to show that it is not an unusual meaning of the word unless they were able to do a big corpus analysis and and show that it appeared some minimum number of times and that that analysis didn't require the further inference. I think we're sort of back where we were, but maybe I'm wrong. Yeah, it's hard to do in the abstract. We'd have to come up with some examples. But, 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 but I'm imagining there are instances where a, a person could rebut the assertion, hey, that is a highly unusual, you are arguing for an extremely unusual inter uh, interpretation of that word or phrase, right? Um, okay, for some value of the word extremely unusual, I can show you that's incorrect, factually incorrect, because I can show you lots and lots of people using it in just that way, okay? I think we could imagine there are some examples where that that could be useful. I think another one would be, um, if the assertion is that a, f a word or phrase unambiguously means a particular thing, right? I can say, eh, I actually think it's ambiguous because I can show you there are multiple other candidates for what it could mean that are reflected in actual usage of the language by ordinary speakers of the language. Um, so, so it seems to me in the face of those other examples, it's hard to maintain it unambiguously means one and only one thing. Uh, and there are times when uh, a term ha being ambiguous is either a threshold determination along some other thing. Lenity might be triggered, as Christian mentioned before. If it's a contract case, maybe there are some doctrines we don't use unless a term is ambiguous, right? So, um, ruling ambiguity, ruling unambiguity out uh, is a thing that is potentially legally useful. So those are at least two things that I think um, th this could be a useful input. And, and of course, the, I mean, the sort of the, 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 the thing stalking the entire conversation so far, I'm surprised it hasn't come up yet, um, is that we lawyers rely heavily on this construct called ordinary meaning. And ordinary meaning, it sounds like, ordinariness sounds like it could be an invocation of some sort of frequency judgment. Um, and it may not be that at all, of course, but, but it might be. And to the degree that it is uh, an invocation of some sort of frequency phenomenon, um, then one can see very much the relevance of corpus linguistics, since one of its principal outputs are frequency measures of various sorts. It is true that the people who um, are pushing for a, a bigger role for corpus linguistics and legal interpretation um, are hanging their hat on the idea that ordinary could be could mean more frequent. Um, I don't think that if you read the cases that speak in terms of ordinary meaning um, that that it's really plausible to read maybe more than like one or two of them as referring to how often you might use a word in a particular way. I think they're referring to how somebody is likely to understand it. Yeah, I've got a problem here too, because uh, you know one thing you, you talk about in the paper, Krista, is 
is is exactly what you search over in order to determine ordinariness. Um, and so in the discharge weapon case, like, do you look for the word discharge and how it's used in other contexts or just with weapons or just with firearms or um, and that can make a difference. So in other words, the, the actual method you use to answer the question is going to drive whether it's producing sensible results or results pointing in both directions or, or what. Um, I got another example, which is which is um, kind of blue. Is that OK, Joe? It's, it's a little blue. It is, although I'm not. Before you give the example, because yeah. I don't want to le- I don't want to drop a thread here that oh boy. Um, Carissa just mentioned, because I think it's really important, um, is that you know what what is ordinary meaning as a legal phenomenon? What are people trying to get to when they mention that idea? Yeah. When they use that idea, um, is it a frequency thing? Is it what would people take you to mean? Or what would most people take you to mean? I think it's the latter, yeah. Right. And and what is the connection between those, right? So so again, if you think about meaning as as a a function of among other things, usage, including frequency of usage, then I think there is these three ideas, ordinary meaning, usage frequency, what a person might take you to mean. Um, there's there's a way in which they're connected with each other and can usefully be um, talked about together and maybe juxtaposed with one another. Yeah, this is what we were talking about a little bit with Larry last week, right? The the, the legal meaning may arise from the entire communicative context, the communicative context, right? Not just from the, you know this is beyond just semantic meaning, whatever that is, right? That you have to enrich it with. Who's talking? Why? For what reason? This was kind of the point of the, the example that I wanted to bring well, it up. Well, adds right? another that, dimension to it, right? So it's there's but, there's a di- there's like a through time up to today, and then there's today. And I think Larry was talking with us about like today, right? And I, I'm saying there's uh, no, I don't think just today. I, I think when he, when he wants to identify original public meaning, right? Uh, you 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 don't identify an original semantic meaning right you identify an original kind of communicative meaning or speaker's meaning yeah he was he was talking about communicative content in terms of not just um, looking up a word but seeing how a word is used with a bunch of other words in a in a sentence or paragraph right and, and a cultural, as a, as a so right. like there's the semantics and the pragmatics. And also the cultural context and all of that. Right. Exactly. You could right. add that too. Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that, that, that's kind of the point. So I, what I'm wondering is um, if it is and – I, and I don't have a real view of this yet. But it seems to me that maybe when people engage in kind of rule talk, when they're making rules for things, like they, they kind of speak differently maybe. Right. I mean, I'm looking up. We got this little uh, uh, a while back. Joe bought this Judge on Hodgman poster uh, of settled law, which contains a bunch of, of excellent rules for for life and especially for his podcast from the Judge John Hodgman podcast, of um, which we are both very big fans. I don't know if you've heard it, Carissa, but it's really great. Oh, I'll have to give it a listen. Yeah. And and it's a bunch of rules. And, you know, it's they're not exactly the Ten Commandments. Uh, there are more of them and they're they cover different subject matters. But but it's a list of rules. And and we've all read a bunch of statutes. And it seems to me that maybe rule talk uses different kinds of words in different ways than ordinary talk. Yeah. Could and, be. and if that's the case, um, I'm wondering, you know, why does the corpus contain Huckleberry Fenn? Um, uh, if, if what you're trying to figure out is when people engage in rule talk in this setting, you know, how do people take them, right? Um, so, so that's the kind of communicative context point kind of more broadly. And and yeah. the example I wanted to use is like, so this this makes it really stark, okay? I, I think it's safe for work. I don't know. But let's just say like in intimate context, you know, uh, par- intimate partners. Okay. 
when they use the phrase do it. You mean sex partners? When yes. You say intimate I said okay. intimate partners. Yeah. Okay. Uh, and they say do it, right? That has a certain set of connotations, <laughs> which, uh, um, which in a business meeting, when someone says, let's do it, they never mean that, right? It never means what it means between sex partners, right? And, the phrase, let's do it. Let's do it, right. Yeah. yeah. It can mean very different things in different contexts, right? Sure. And, um, and, and in neither case would a search of the corpus like, make me more confident I had the right answer mm-hmm. <laughs> than identifying the context in which it was uttered. Yeah. No, look, I, I think that that's really important. I, I also, and, and I hesitate to do this because I think that there are a number of people who are using corpus linguistics because they are genuinely interested in trying to come up with a better method for statutory interpretation. But I just wanted to mention one thing, and that's that a number of people who are gravitating towards corpus linguistics are doing so with a certain ideological prior And that ideological prior is that they don't trust judges. Um, You know, and if you listen to folks, you know, like the panels that they do on corpus and linguistics and stuff like that, they'll say that. Like, I don't trust judges not to insert their policy preferences. Like, I don't trust judges um, not to um, uh, unconsciously allow the outcome in the case to affect them and so on and so forth. Because judges and have a lot of power, right? And so it's like a legitimate concern, this kind judges of majority have a lot of power. Yeah, but yeah. I don't but I don't come from it. I, I hear you, Carissa, and I don't come from it at that way at all, actually. I don't, no, 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 no. We're not talking about you, Joe. I we're understand. Not talking about, I'm trying to not everything is about you, Joe. <laughs> the, the reason that I wanted to bring it up is because um two things. Number one, I think judges are supposed to interpret laws. Like I think that that's you know, a big part of the judicial power that was given to them in Article 3 and in various state constitutions. Yes. But but the second thing is, um, if you are choosing corpus linguistics because you doubt judges' abilities to, in, to make good faith interpretations of language, then asking them to interpret results in a corpus linguistics search is compounding the problem. Agreed. So because it's a tough interpretive task, it's a tough inter- you're, you're asking them to make many, 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 many interpretations instead of a single interpretation. And I, I guess I also too just I, I don't think that there is a meaning that this is an objective question that we might be able to settle. And I do worry that once we start giving judges these search results that say, oh, 63 percent they're going to feel pressure that if they don't choose 63% that it's somehow quote unquote wrong. And I don't, I don't personally, I don't think that there are right and wrong answers in these cases. I think that there are probably answers that we agree with and answers that we disagree with. And yeah, it's important not to lose sight of that. It's really interesting that you, when you numericize this stuff, you, you introduce some interesting psychological pressures. I, I'm, uh, and you've indicated your, that concern and, and I'm, I don't come to it f- with that prior at all. I, I like corpus linguistics stuff. Um, and, and you're right. I've written about it and used it in a particular patent law context. But I, in, in terms of a statutory interpretation or, or other uh, interpreting other legal instruments more generally, um, you know, I like it for the same reason that I like legislative history. Because I think more information is better than less. And so if you're trying to triangulate Did you something... live through 2016, Joe? What? Did you live through 2016? <laughs> Just, just, I did. Just making sure that you're going to go check your pulse in a second to make sure that maybe you didn't. <laughs> Why do you ask? I don't understand. No, just, uh, I, I thought we got over the idea that like more information is always better. 
<laughs> well, yeah, and, more, and and more maybe, good maybe, information obviously is better because because you don't want your information to be garbage. The, I understand. Well, that, yeah, but, part of the critique here is that more a lot of a lot of this information might be garbage, and, and of course, the, the whole and, job of a method is to sort the garbage from the whatever you think is valuable, which is normative. Yes, and to and but to to taking as a given that one wants to do this stuff well and not poorly. And so, for example, when you want to consult legislative history, like you you don't just grab. A, a random set of paragraphs from a text generator that's used to yeah yeah obviously okay you you take the relevant stuff and you can even make say you know committee reports better than floor statements and I, yes all that's true but but with the qualification that you want to do your job well and not poorly it seems to me developing more sources of of good and helpful information is better than having fewer of them. Well, and I think that the, it, and, and, it, it and, I, totally, and I approach yeah. the corpus linguistics exercise in that spirit. It, it depend, not because I fear judicial judgment or something right. of that nature. It depends on the question asked, and it depends on the method chosen. Of because course, there are methods you could apply to that database which would be far worse than taking than throwing a dart, even. But but, but what you just said, it, it depends on the method chosen and the question asked, is true. Before corpus linguistics ever arose, uh, yeah. it was true with all the other texts judges were routinely yes. consulting. Uh, That's you know, because looking they were to the King yeah. James Bible, for example, right. yes. looking to this or that, I, for example, I hear you. looking to Shakespeare or other, because judges have done that time out of mind too. Right. Which is why corpus linguistics is not new, and which is why I'm trying to pin down what exactly is the methodology here about which we're debating, right? And, and because we've been doing this for a long time, and this has the potential, as you say, to do it better. If better means you know, well, better doesn't mean anything until you say something about like what 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 the good is, and then what well, the course. question is. And so, if the question is how would most people have taken discharge a weapon in the 1920s, then I absolutely think getting a lot of texts from the 1920s and doing a careful analysis of how people took it, you know, um, how people use that word, at least conceptually, how people used yeah, other words uh, yeah. with weapons, how people use discharge with other objects right. instead of weapons. You're trying to nail down a particular method. And I can't imagine all the possible methods, but I can imagine that in concept, there could be a method which used a lot of data yeah. to answer that question better than my just wondering, well, you know, about 100 years ago, how might people have used that word? And by looking at a 1920 dictionary or something like that. So I imagine in concept, one could come up with a method that would do a better job where better is defined as more likely according with how the ordinary person constructed somehow might have taken that term. Yeah. But if my question is, um, uh, given the, the given some statutory uh, language meant to impose um, criminal liability, um, how would a fair-minded jurist um, apply it in the particular facts in front of him or her? Uh, to the particular facts in front of him or her in a way acceptable to the community. Today. Yes. Then I th I'm not sure corpus linguistics helps uh, helps us at all in the sense that I'm not sure having a da database of old texts would be helpful under just about any method. Guys, I'm so sorry, but I'm going to have to sign off. I tried to DM you, but it didn't seem to go through. Oh, bummer. I know. I'm really sorry. Like, it's all the technical problems on my side, like, really ended up being so that we didn't get to talk nearly as long. It's, yeah. it's not just your side. It's like, you know, this is just it's Skype. It's not your fault. But, Carissa, thank you for joining us for as long as you could. Do you have any summing up? It was my pleasure. No, I mean, I have to say, I think that this was... I think that this was a, a, a very, very, very fruitful conversation. But I think, actually, the... The, the thing that got said last there, right, that you could imagine that it's possible that we might be able to come up with some way to use this information. I guess I don't disagree with that, but I'd feel a lot more comfortable if we spent more time trying to figure out 
why the information would be useful rather than trying to use the information and then figure out how to shoot and then trying to sort of build a theory around it. Right. Yeah. Well said. Cool. All right, Carissa. Thanks so much. Great to talk to you guys. Bye-bye. Bye.